So we were, in, in our discussion, we had gotten to the point of, uh, where we were going to look at the doctrine of the five aggregates. The teaching that what a person is, what each individual consists of, can be described in terms of uh, body and mind, and that body together with the four constituents of, of mind are the five aggregates. And how many of you have never really, are not really familiar with the five aggregates from before? Do you know the five aggregates from before? No, so it's new to you? Okay, it's probably new to you. Yeah. Are you familiar with, uh, you are, right? All right, so, well. The first, I, I know that I went over what the five are last night. I'm gonna just identify them again. So the, the first of them, uh, the body aggregate is, uh, or form, it's actually called the rupa is what it's called, and the other four are called nama. So rupa, uh, rupa refers to the material or the physical, uh, or if we're talking about uh, you as a person, I, we would mean by that the material, physical part, which is your body. The other four, which are mental, uh, the first one, uh, just as uh, just as the one we discussed, I said it's called rupa, meaning form. Then the first of the mental aggregates is called vedana, and that's usually translated into English as feeling. <coughs> it's something we've talked about before, but just to be clear. When we're referring to feeling in this discussion, we don't mean sensations and we don't mean emotions, we just mean the quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness are neutral. So this is one of the five constituents of a human being, is feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The second is perception, and we have talked somewhat already about what perception is, but when we talk about it as this aggregate of perceptions, uh, I think the idea of what a perception is will come much clearer. But what a perception is, is it is the way you know and understand things, the way you identify and recognize things, those are your perceptions. The actual experience you have of something is your, your uh, is mostly your perception of it, and it's something that is part of the mind. Uh, then next is mental formations. The last one is consciousness. Mental formations is the fourth one that comes before that. And mental formations is basically everything you can think of that is mental in nature 
other than consciousness, perceptions, and feelings. <laughs> so it's a large category. Mental formations, a thought is a mental formation. It's something that is formed in, uh, by your mind. An emotion is a mental formation. So thoughts and ideas and emotions are all examples of mental formations. Your inclinations, your habits and patterns of the way you think and react and do things, those are mental formations. Those are uh, formations that have been created in your mind as a result of your past experience. And intentions are mental formations. Intentions are a very important kind of mental formation. Okay, so that's what the aggregate of mental formations uh, includes. Any questions? Yes. So with all three of those, like say feelings, when you say that um, that's an aggregate, like you talk about a per particular person, he has this aggregate of feelings. Does he? Yeah. And so do you mean all the feelings he has already felt, or do you mean the way he, the things that feel good to him and the things that don't, how he feels, what do you mean exactly? Well, in any given moment, uh, the aggregate of feelings are the feelings that are active in terms of his present circumstances, but uh, we also think of a person in a historical sense. So it, it is just that heap of all those different pleasant and unpleasant and neutral experiences that he's had in the course of his existence. So it's like a state, the first thing you said, it's like a state, the state of that individual is these feelings at this moment. That's right. Yes. See, if uh, a, a more correct way of talking about the five aggregates uh, would be to call them not five aggregates, but uh, five uh, constituent elements. But they are spoken of typically as aggregates because the word that was originally used by the Buddha was was kanda, which meant collection. You know, and, but depending on the time scale at which you look at it, in one instant, the, uh, the, the, there would be only one feeling present. Over the course of a few moments, there might be several feelings present. Uh, and uh, they might be qualitatively the same. They may, there may be three or four pleasant feelings, but they're associated with different objects. So it's an aggregate or it's a collection of feelings that are making up a person's experience. And likewise, you know, uh, the kind of person that you are right now is partly the mental state that you're in, which is a mental formation. But if you've had a lot of unpleasant feelings you know, it's, it's 6 o'clock at night, or what is it, 7 o'clock? 7 o'clock at night. And if you got up at 5.45 in the course of the day, you've had a whole lot of unpleasant feelings. The aggregate of those unpleasant feelings has had a powerful effect on the mental state that you are, are in right now. So uh, a lifetime of pleasant feelings or unpleasant feelings has a strong influence on 
the, uh, the way that a person is in, in a given moment. But so does that in the previous few hours, or, right? So, so uh, these constituent elements, in terms of their heapness or their aggregateness or their quantitativeness, <laughs> in any given instant, uh, they're going to be very limited. Consciousness. There's, uh, there's, uh, in the aggregate of consciousness, it's an aggregate because there's eye consciousness, ear consciousness, uh, nose, tongue, uh, body, and mind consciousness. So, in an instant, in a particular instant, the kind of consciousness that you have is only one, depending on which one of these modalities your ex consciousness is experiencing its object. But, of course, over, over a few moments, there's many, we, we see and hear, and, and, and there's multiple consciousnesses present. Okay, so that sort of clarify the, the heapness as opposed to the constituent elementness of these five things. Okay. And, and uh, I would like to double check. Then the value, the personal value system and the uh, opinion is the Perception or mental no. formation? That's uh, the, mental. the mental formations. Uh, if you, uh, yes, your mental formation, your opinions and your values are part of the mental formations. Okay. All right, well, let's, uh, let's look at this then and, and clear. Oh, yes. Oh, sorry. I, I yes. just have one uh, question here uh, since the body is a concept of the mind. Well, that's that's one of the things that we wanted to talk about. Okay. Okay, and let's go ahead. Let's start. Let's look at these in closer detail right now. Okay, and we'll begin with the with the form aggregate, with the body, with the rupa, rupa kanda, is what it's called. So, the body. What do we actually know about the body? How do you know you have a body? Skin. Huh? What? Oh. What? Skin. Well, how do you know you have skin? <laughs> because you feel it, right? Yeah. yeah, and you see it. So we know we have a body because we feel it, and we see it, you know, and we smell it. And, yeah. <laughs> right? It hurts. Yeah, so, and sometimes it hurts and things like that. So... It, it's an interesting thing that if we look closely, okay, at the body, uh, all the, the, the we know that we have a body because of sensations, only. And so, body is actually a perception. And really, when we look closely at the form aggregate, at, at the at the aggregate that we call body what we really find there is nothing but sensations. But we are customarily thinking of that as, as the body. And if we carry this a step further, what do we know about the external world, the material universe, the physical universe? What do we know about it? We know, we know it only by virtue of sensations. So the entire universe of material objects is in fact a perception. 
It's a mental construct that has been created in, in order to make sense of the sensations that we have. But in terms of relative reality and our normal way of thinking of things, we, we assume that there is something that corresponds to the body based on our lifetime of sensations. Now, the interesting thing here, and I think this is what, what was occurring to you, is that when we realize that everything that we call physical or material, the body and the rest of the universe, is really a perception generated by the mind, then it seems like the form aggregate should really be considered part of the mind. And, that's, and that is true from, that, from the point of view of that deeper understanding. As a matter of fact, uh, all of our ideas of the body, like skin and blood and things like that, are mental formations based on our past experience. And our experience of our body is a perception. So it's mental formation and perception. But the same thing is true of trees and rocks. That uh, trees and rocks and everything else like that are mental formations as well because of sensations that we've had, visual sensations and tactile sensations, we, we have the mental, uh, we have the concept, the mental formation of trees and rocks. Oh, I'm sorry, earlier you said mental formation yeah. of trees and rocks. Wouldn't that be perception? Yeah. Well, no, that's a mental, the trees and rocks are concepts and ideas. And then when we have a particular sensation, we have a perception of a tree. If, if you look out the window there, then you'll have a visual sensation. And because there exists in your aggregate of mental formations the idea of a tree, and it matches those sensations, you'll have a perception of a tree. Right? So. Yeah, a little bit later on, can you uh, distinguish more, uh, more uh, about the perception of mental formations? Yes, okay. yes, I, yes, I will. I, I, I intend to do that. So, so you have the idea then, like from our normal way of understanding when we refer to this aggregate, we are essentially referring to that part of reality which we normally perceive of as being composed of matter and to be physical. And when we are referring to it as an aggregate that is a constituent of each of us as a person, we're referring to our body. But at a deeper level, uh, it is true that body is just a concept or a mental formation and our experience of this aggregate is just perception that's based on those mental formations. So it's, it's good to have that in mind, but it won't, but, and, and we can have that in mind, but and still recognize the usefulness of this aggregate as, as in, in the form that it comes, referring to the physical body. But in truth, in most cases, when we refer to it, when we think about who we are in terms of these five aggregates, what we'll end up doing is thinking in terms of sensation. Okay. So, 
Feelings, I think we have talked about enough that everybody, you, you have a clear understanding of feelings. Feelings, I wish we had a better way of, of describing this because it's so easy to confuse feelings with emotion and feelings with, with sensations. Sensations belong to the form aggregate, but feeling and emotions belong to the mental formations aggregate. And feelings is just <clears throat> that quality of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So it would be better to call this the aggregate of quality or the aggregate of affective quality. Yes? There is a matching between them, yeah. Um, did, did you get sorted out what you There is the, the form aggregate, which is the body, 
in, in our ordinary way of thinking, but in a more refined way of thinking, it is sensation. Okay. Second, there is feelings. Second, there is feelings. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. In other words, feelings as affective quality. A quality of pleasantness, a quality of unpleasantness are neutral. Third is our perceptions. That's the way we understand things to be. Fourth is mental formations or mental constructs, the constructions of the mind. Okay? And then finally is consciousness. So conscious, conscious is So mental formation is Mental formation is Okay. So uh, we clear what feelings are, perceptions. Everybody's got a pretty good idea what perceptions are. They are, that's the knowing of something, the recognizing of something, the identification of something. Okay. And then the mental formations. The mental formations are, uh, as I said, all the thoughts and ideas and emotions and beliefs and opinions and uh, uh, craving, desire, aversion. All of those kinds of things, anger, irritation, love, these are all mental formations. These are things generated by the mind, formed by the mind. And then finally there is consciousness, and there's six kinds of consciousness. There's the consciousness associated with the eye, a visual object, uh, and with the ear, and with the nose, and with the body, and with the tongue. And the sixth kind of consciousness is the consciousness that knows mental objects. And of course, mental formations are mental objects, perceptions are mental objects, feelings are mental objects. Thoughts and ideas are also mental objects. Now, so everybody's no more questions about that? But at least we have kind of a general idea of these five aggregates. So let's see how they work. Uh, you see, we, when we would say this is the body and the mind, we're thinking in the usual way of objects. The body is an object, and the mind is another object. And the mind knows about the world through the body. So you have a world of objects, and in that is the body object, and somehow related to that is the mind object. This is ordinary view, and it's also uh, not an accurate view. Although it seems very natural to us to think in this way, uh, if we stop just taking it for granted and look, are you really these objects? What you really are is a series of experiences. Your life is 
a series of experiences. So then we go back and we look at these five aggregates and say, well, how, does the, how do these five aggregates work in terms of experiences? So an ordinary, very, very normal kind of experience is that you open your eyes and there's an image there. But you are conscious, you're conscious of uh, a visual image. So the, there's, the, there's eye consciousness, that kind of visual consciousness, and the object of that consciousness would belong to which aggregate? The form aggregate. See, we normally say, well, the veil is a physical thing. But we're, what we really realize is we have, is there's an experience. And actually, if the bell were out there ways and my hands were tied behind me and I opened my eyes, I could be tricked. It could be actually not a bell. It could be only a picture of a bell or a holographic projection of a bell. And I would be fooled. So what my actual experience is when I open my eyes is a, 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 an image. And that's the form aggregate. And I'm conscious of that image. Okay, so you have eye consciousness and an object of eye consciousness. And then, depending on my past experience, if I have ever seen an object like this before, then contained within my aggregate of mental formations will be concepts and ideas, and I'll recognize that that's a meditation bell. If I had never seen anything like this before, uh, I might have a perception of something different. I would perceive it as being whatever there was in my past experience that it looked most like. And if I'd never seen anything with this shape before, I would go, you know, I would, based on that image, I would say, well, things that look like that in my past experience have been made of metal. And so I would have a perception of a metal object of a particular shape. You know, I might look at this part, and based on my past experience, uh, I would say things that look like that that I've seen before in my lifetime, the mental formations that I have stored up, you know, sorting through them, my mind will find past experiences that say, well, that looks like something that probably feels flexible and connects two parts together and might be made out of cloth or plastic or leather or something like that. So I would have, that's my perception. So, so perception is, uh, we, we, when a, a, a sense object arises and consciousness arises, then there, uh, then there is a brief moment where there is just the sensation that is known to consciousness. But very quickly, the moves between the two, the perception. You see? The perception of this as a meditation bell is actually an, another mental construct that was generated from my aggregate of mental constructs and then put forward between consciousness and the sensation so that I have the experience of perceiving a bell. Do you follow that? Now, if I had never seen anything even remotely like this, if it was so totally different than anything I'd ever seen, 
I might not actually have a perception. I might just sit there and all there is is some strange color and shape and I'm trying to figure out what it is. But no perception will arise. Right? You've had that happen sometimes. Right? When the light's not very good, you'll see something and you can't figure out what it is that you're looking at. Or sometimes you have a mistaken perception. A very famous example is that there may be a rope coiled up on the ground and you may look at it and mistake it for a snake. You have a perception of a snake. You have the sensation, though, is just the color and shape, that the perception is a snake. And then if you look closer, the perception changes and it becomes a perception of a rope. So this tells you the nature of consciousness and sensation and perception. Yes? So perception we have experience and mental formation just don't need. The mental formation is, is that accumulated past experience. And it's out of that mental formation that perception comes. Your perception, though, is a new mental formation. I mean, we, uh, in this particular system, perceptions are regarded as a separate aggregate because in the way we just spoke, it, it makes it easier, it makes it clearer. But a perception is a mental formation. And your aggregate of mental formations includes past perceptions. Okay? And now this new perception, this new perception you have gets stored as a part of your aggregate of mental formations and will be used on, the, on some future occasion. That's right. And when I heard the five aggregates describe memories was another level of consciousness past the six, or so I thought. Like seventh consciousness is memory. <laughs> uh, that, that's, uh, that's, that's not a correct description. Yeah. Because the five aggregates, um, they, they include the six consciousness and, and what I think you might have been thinking of, there is in, uh, in some systems they refer to there being a seventh and an eighth kind yeah, of consciousness. Right, seventh and eighth, right. Right, okay. And I thought one of those was memory, mm -hmm. and then the other one was something really mysterious. Yeah. No, the, uh, uh, the, the seventh and the eighth are uh, uh, consciousness. The eighth consciousness is called the uh, alaya Alaya, yeah. And it's also called the storehouse consciousness. Yeah, yeah. But it's not the memory. It's not, it's not remembering where you put your keys. And it's not, you know, remembering the capital of Georgia or remembering your name either. It is, <clears throat> it is the uh, karmic imprint, the cumulative karmic imprint. And actually, in the original formulation by the Buddha, those are included in, in the uh, aggregate of mental formations. Okay? So, in the alaya, those, those have been separated out and referred to as a separate consciousness, which is very confusing, because although 
the, the word that's used, vijnana, is the word we translate as consciousness. You have absolutely no conscious awareness of the aleya. So it makes no sense to call it a consciousness. Why call something that, you, that it's impossible for you to be aware of a consciousness? So it's one of those confusing things in, in, in the doctrines. I mean, when you get used to it, it's not so bad, but... <laughs> yes? Yeah, it's different schools. Yes, it's a different school, but it's actually, it's just a different way of talking about the same thing. It's not really a new idea. It's a school that says, hey, you know, the, the mental formations, the part of the mental formations that are karmic seeds, uh, let's separate that out, you know, and let's identify it and why, you know, to me it makes no sense that they put it into the aggregate of consciousnesses, as I said. It doesn't, it doesn't really follow from the whole logic. But it's not, that, it's not that it's a totally different idea or anything. It's just a rearrangement of the same ideas. I think that, so, but memory, uh, memory and also the contents of the aleya, which is not memory, are all included in mental formations in the original formulation that the Buddha himself taught. Okay. So okay. the eye consciousness is what the eye is perceiving at a moment, or it could be considered the aggregate of all the... Well, eye, eye consciousness is not what the eye is perceiving, it is that the eye is seeing. It's eye, con eye consciousness is, is visual consciousness. Okay. So, and, and what, what the visual consciousness is of, whatever particular thing that the visual consciousness is of, that is sensation, that's, that's form. So you have eye consciousness of a particular form, ear consciousness of a particular form, uh, auditory form. Okay. So when we, look, when we look at the aggregate of form from the point of view of experience, it is uh, it is sounds, uh, visual forms, uh, tactile sensations, tastes, and smells. And just to make it a little bit confusing, because we started out saying that form was the physical, but they also say that there are six kinds of sense objects that make up form, and they include thoughts and memories and emotions. I think it's simplest form, just think of form in terms of the five types of times, types of bodily uh, sense objects, okay? And so there are corresponding five kinds of consciousness corresponding to those. The fact that we can be conscious of a thought or conscious of a memory, now that is a sixth kind of consciousness but the object of that consciousness is a mental formation, okay? That's a mental object. But also remember that when we open our eyes, we only have a brief moment of consciousness of form because quickly that is replaced by consciousness of a mental object, which is the perception of a bill.
That's right. You know what it's about. That's right. And this is what we do. And, you know, the interesting thing is that the normal person only touches into consciousness of actual sensations briefly and intermittently and spends most of their time attending to mental objects, their perceptions and their ideas about the perceptions. And this, of course, is taken advantage of by magicians and uh, camouflage and people, you know, there's a, a, a thing that some people learn to do it's called being invisible, learning to disappear into the background. You're taking advantage of the fact that people only briefly see what's actually there and mostly see what they expect to see. And likewise, we hear what we expect to hear. Uh, you can uh, uh, even, have any of you ever seen uh, it, it, it circulated a while ago as an email thing, and that's why I remember it wasn't too long ago. It's a very interesting thing that you can have a whole paragraph of text, and most of the letters from most of the words are missing, but you can still read it as, as, as if the letters were there. And it's an amazing thing. Your mind just fills in all the missing parts of it. But we do this all of the time. One consequence of this, though, not only that uh, things can be hidden from us by camouflage or the magicians can play tricks on us, is that we play terrible tricks on ourselves all of the time. We jump to conclusions. We don't, we, uh, our perceptions are false. Very often we're very prone to false perceptions. And uh, this, is, this, is one of the, this is one of the things that leads to, to many problems is that we don't really pay attention in, in many different ways. Used car salesmen also take advantage of that. <laughs> you see the shiny paint. You don't see the, <laughs> you don't see the things you should have been looking for. <laughs> you, you smell the nice smell that they sprayed in the car. You know? <laughs> so. so, a person is these five aggregates, and if you think of it as a person, your existence as a person is a series of experiences consisting of sensation, consciousness, and perception. And each sensation and each perception is accompanied by a feeling, this, uh, this quality of pleasantness and unpleasantness. And so this sort of paints the background to, to all of your different experiences. Now, this other aggregate, the fourth one, the mental formations, as you should could already see, this one is, uh, it, ha it, it contains a lot. It's a very important one. Um, it has the mental formations are your accumulated previous experience and your accumulated previous opinions and values and judgments and your memories. And of course those memories of previous experiences are associated with the feelings that you had. So when you experience something, 
if there was, it could have pleasant associations or unpleasant associations. And that is all a part of this aggregate of mental formations. Each new experience you have, your perception is determined by these mental formations. So what you, what, how, whatever you see and hear, how you experience it, is a result of those mental formations. Every one of us has different mental formations. I think that would be obvious. So even though uh, both of us at the same time may have the same eye consciousness uh, registering the same image, we could have very different perceptions because we've got very different mental formations. And we might have very different feelings associated with that perception. Indeed, when you were born, when you are perhaps even before you were born, the only thing that the mental formations consisted of was some innate predispositions. Does everyone know what I mean? Innate means inborn. You were it already came with certain predispositions. One of those innate predispositions was uh, if a sensation felt good, you wanted more of it. And if a sensation felt bad, you wanted it to stop, right? But you didn't know anything else about the world. And as a, as a newborn baby, uh, your eyes are open, but you have no idea what you're seeing, right? There's just color and shape. But over a little while, you begin to start having perceptions. Your experiences are stored, and then they build up, and now you start having perceptions. It doesn't take a newborn baby very long before they recognize their mother, their mother's face, right? And uh, maybe if, uh, uh, you know, they, they might associate their mother's face with the pleasure of being fed and taken care of, there might be some other face that they associate with uh, something unpleasant. And so a baby will see that other place, uh, other face and they cry. But they're beginning to construct a world. And as they grow and as they accumulate more experience, they begin to move around and touch and feel things and taste things and everything else. They begin constructing in their mind uh, a world to explain the sensations that they have. And this is the mental formations. The mental formations, this is where this happens. So, we, as I said, we do have certain innate predispositions. You could say they are mental formations that we are born with. And definitely, we're born with, uh, the, a mental formation that we're born with is craving. So that when there's pleasure, we want more, and when there's pain, we want less. So that is already there. But then we start building them up after that. Yeah? I experienced that with uh, these little piggies that I, I help my dog deliver. I mm -hmm. deliver every puppy with my dog. And after they were born, when they took the first breath, they sort of, uh, I sort of moved them up, you know, because they were coming one by one. Mm -hmm. They kept trying to go back. To the, it's like, you know, how did you, even though they don't see, they kept trying to go back, and I have to uh, 
like move them away so that one can come out. Yeah. But it was funny how they kept trying to get back and they knew where to go. <laughs> so they, like, they knew this wasn't going to be as good as what they had before. <laughs> <laughs> it's like already uh, wanting pleasure, you know, being happier inside than outside. That was interesting. Well, as we grow up, we, we develop all kinds of mental formations that have to do with our behavior. They become habitual ways of responding. And, and of course, it's based on how successful these things are. Uh, uh, initially, in a small child, uh, being happy. So, you know, they might, uh, might have a parent that every time they throw a tantrum, they give them what they want. So then, they're going to develop a very strong habit of you know, if they want something, they make a big fuss, and then they expect the world to give them whatever they want, right? And that same kind of pattern, if you, if you look at what a person is, you'll see that there are habitual tendencies in the way they respond to any particular kind of situation. This is the other part of it. We have an experience, there's a perception, but as a result of that perception, we will react. And if, it's some, if the perception is of something we want, then our reaction is going to be uh, the kind of behavior that we engage in to get what we want. So intentions come from mental formations as well. And intentions are, they're built up, they're accumulated, you know, uh, they become our personality. Our personality is formed throughout our life by our experiences and by the actions that we take and by the results that we get from those actions. So, pretty major, isn't it? If you are a generous person, it's because generosity is a mental formation that has been developed in you. Now, you may have developed, you may have been born with a predisposition to be generous, and then your experience may have made that become stronger and stronger and stronger. But your experience could have caused that to become weaker. Somebody else may be born with a, a, an innate predisposition not to be generous, and likewise their experience can either make that tendency stronger or it can be reversed and, and they could become generous in spite of it. So you as an individual are these five aggregates. You go through the world Having experiences, and the kind of experience you have is determined by your accumulated past mental formations. And then out of that will arise an intention leading to an action, also from your past experiences. This new experience is added to the mental formations and is part of what determines your future perceptions. 
Likewise, the intentions that you gave rise to and the results that they produce are stored away and they are part of the mental formations that determine how you're going to react in the future. See how that works? But you're saying that from what you're following what I'm saying up to this point, and you're saying uh, it's making you wonder where choice and free will is going to come from. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm asking about. Yeah. And that's a very good question. That's something that we, we definitely need to see if we can find the answer to in this. Okay. Uh, let's make sure we've got the basic. We've got the basic uh, working hypothesis. Everybody understands it. That you are a series of experiences and every one of these experiences has these five constituent elements to it. And so when you refer to yourself as a person or when someone else refers to you as a person, they're referring to that aggregate of constituent elements in this unfolding series of experiences. But clear you call that all right? Yeah. Okay. So if we can see that that's, that's what we are. But most interestingly is that, and we can go into this more deeply, but when a new sensation arises, the perception that you have is not dependent upon the way the external world is so much as it's dependent upon your accumulated mental formations, right? So your experience is determined by your past. And then your actions are likewise determined by your past. And your present experience and your present actions then determine your future. Does this sound like any sort of a idea that has been spoken of by a different name? What you experience is the result of your past, and what you will experience in the future is the result of the present karma. Yeah, yeah, that's karma. So if you want to look for where your karma is, your karma is in these mental formations, which is why the uh, that particular school that has the eight consciousnesses, and that, that's called the, the uh, Chitta Matra or, or mind-only school. Uh, what they did is they took the, the karmic aspect of the mental formations and they uh, separated out and called it the Alaya Vijnana. The seventh consciousness, that's the one that divides experience into the duality of self and not-self. <laughs> Which, of course, in the original formation is also some formulation, in the original formulation of the Buddha, that is also contained within the mental formations. Part of our mental formations 
uh, part of what it does is to generate this sense of a, a, a separate self. And also this idea of who we are as a self, this idea of me as a person, this kind of person. So, the bell has rang. I don't know if we should stop for going for a few minutes. Or? Go on. Go on for a few minutes. Go on for a few more hours. Okay. All right. So uh, then, let's look at the karmic aspect of this. Now, if we look at this and you say, well, okay, when something happens then, and I'm the kind of person that uh, I tend to become angry. And I realize that now that that is, that's like, that's because of my accumulated past experience, all those other times that I got angry. It became a habitual reaction. When this kind of thing happens, it's not, it doesn't have to be exactly the same thing, it just has to be something similar. When your new experience involves similar components, then mental formations generate the emotion of anger as being the appropriate response. And so you have the experience of anger arising. And that is determined by the past. Now, you may have the urge because you're angry to say something or do something. But that, that is where something new comes up. That is where the, that uh, you don't necessarily, just because you have anger arising, you don't have to say something because of the anger or you don't have to carry out a particular action because of the anger. The question is whether you can restrain yourself from it or not. It depends upon how strongly that past habit has already been uh, established, how firmly established it is, will maybe, and it depends on the present circumstances too. It depends on whether the circumstances bringing forth the anger in this moment bring forth an anger that is so strong that you won't be able to resist acting out of it, or perhaps it only brings up a mild annoyance and you're able to restrain yourself. Yes? I saw really quick, there was a great show on PBS about the brain, and the phrase I remember was, things that fire together, wire together. Yes, that's a, that's a very, that? yeah. That? yeah anger fires yeah. at the same time as this kind of experience, That's exactly, all these things that, you know, it's interesting, everything that the, the Buddha figured out and taught 2,500 years ago, modern neuroscientists and physicists and things like this are discovering exactly the same thing. But that is exactly the principle, yes, things that wire together, fire together. So you build up a pattern of behaving in a particular way. And everybody may say, you know, about that person, well, that's just the way she is. She, she just, she's like that. Boy, that doesn't take much to set her off. <laughs> and you may say that about you about yourself. You say, ah, 
It's just the way I am. It doesn't take much to set me up. I don't know why I am this way, but you know, and I'd like to be different, but you know, I can't help myself. I, for years, I wished I could do something, but I can't change it. And the wonderful thing about what we're talking about here is that it involves a way that you can change yourself through understanding. You see, first of all, you have to accept that the anger that arises in this moment is determined by the past. But what you do with it is what's important. Now, let's take, let's take the case of somebody who's already been practicing mindful awareness and, uh, and virtue for a while. Um, then what will happen is that anger arises, but because of their understanding of the Dharma and because of their practice of mindful awareness, they don't say, I am angry. They say, anger is arising in me. And this is the first thing. When you say, I am angry, that goes into the story of mental formations. Anger is a part of the identity of this being. That's the first mistake. <laughs> That's the first mistake is to is to identify with it. And the first achievement that will help to eliminate that is if the anger comes up and you just let it be there until it loses its energy and it goes away. If you don't grasp onto it, if you don't identify with it, you, you'll be making a completely new kind of imprint. Every time in the past, anger came up and you grasp onto it and that made it stronger. When it comes up and you don't grasp onto it, that will make it weaker in the future. Then the second thing that happens is anger comes up and it brings along all of its friends in the form of the intentions to, to do something. When, when you're angry at somebody, you know, I'm going to let them have it. And, and so the thoughts come of which words to say. If it's somebody you know, you know what to say to hurt them, right? <laughs> So the thoughts come and the intention to say that. And then it's the same thing. You, this idea of, of, of I can either accept that intention, which of course will mean that that, intent, that kind of intention will arise in the future, or it can be allowed to just arise, not be acted on, let go, in which case it is, is weaker and it will tend to go away. So you can overcome all of the unwholesome patterns that you have by watching, but first of all, the mistakes that you don't want to make is to get mad at yourself for being angry. That is not going to help. If you get mad at yourself for feeling anger, then you've fallen into a trap. You have to let the anger arise, accept it, well, it's got a right to be there because I, you know, I made it in the past and I, I set the whole program up so that it would come. There's nothing in the universe that could have kept it from coming. So no reason to hit myself over the head about it. Because if I get mad at myself, what is that? That's anger or impatience or judgment or criticism. It is it may not be exactly the same thing, but it is the same kind of thing. 
And maybe all I'll do is I'll end up being somebody who becomes very self-judgmental and self-hating because of the way that I am. So you don't want to make any, you just want to let whatever it is come up. And if you can mindfully look at it, then something very important will happen. Not only do you not identify with it, but as you mindfully examine it, there comes this natural, spontaneous awareness of what is in front of you. If your eyes are open, if you're looking, if your mind is open and you're paying attention, it's, oh, it sure doesn't feel good to be angry. Wow. Right? That, that gets stored in your mental formations. That's an even more powerful message that doesn't feel good, doesn't feel good physically, doesn't feel good mentally. Um, every, uh, now, even if, let's, let's look at a different case where anger comes up and it's so strong that, that you, you make the mistake of identifying that I am angry, you know, and the thoughts come and that anger is totally justified. Anybody would be angry. You know. if, if he did that to them, He'd be just as angry as I am. And, and, you know, totally justified in being angry. And the urge comes up to say or do something, and you don't restrain yourself. You go ahead and say and do it. You haven't lost. Okay? What will happen later on is you, you'll calm down, and then you'll look at what happened. Now, the mistake that people who don't understand this will make is they say, oh, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. They'll run away from it. They'll hide from it. They'll do something else. They'll think about something else. They won't examine it with mindfulness. And they've missed their opportunity. Because even, even if you identified with it and fed it in that way, nurtured it that way, and even if you acted on the impulses and the intentions it gave rise to, you can still be victorious if you examine it mindfully and reflect and say, ah, you see, you shine the light of consciousness on it. You say, ah, oh, that anger, ah, oh, I felt really bad. Ah, oh, look at what I did, what I, what I said. That was, that was not good. Look at the harm that it caused. You know, so you just see it. Once again, not judging, not beating yourself up, not saying, oh, I should never have done that, I'm so bad. But instead, because that, those judgments, those perceptions, they're not helping. They feed into the same mistaken way of thinking. But instead, you look at it analytically, objectively, like it was some, somebody else's story. If it was somebody else, you'd say, oh, look at what he did, you know. Wow, you know, the results are bad. He's, he's unhappy, now she's unhappy, you know, look at all the problems. All that information goes in, and that is part of the mental formations, and that will have a powerful effect. So that maybe next time, next time you won't say or do the thing. Maybe next time you won't even identify with the anger that arises. Do you see the difference? It, you'll be surprised if you practice this. It begins to work. Maybe the, the first first few, if it's, if it's something that is a, a very strong tendency, the first few times, you know, you only become clear-headed long hours afterwards. But if you apply mindfulness to it, then you will become clear-headed much more 
quickly. And the time will come when this becomes to be less and less of a problem. You, you start to change your karma. Yes? Um, most of the time when I have wanted to say something to somebody and, and that person maybe deserves to be told to have correct his life or her, yeah. um, most of the time when I have held myself back, very hard to do, yeah. uh, 90% of the time, I, I, I'm so glad I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> Always, uh, even though I was right when I had when I want to tell the person what they did wrong uh, and the consequences mm -hmm. that was not happening if I opened my mouth. Yeah. Because your mouth is so powerful sometimes. It is. Um, and I realized that. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. most of the time, I, I'm saying 99% is better to keep my mouth shut mm -hmm. and just let it dissolve or it's not my problem, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think that it's made me happier because it just made me yeah. better. That's right. That's right speech. <laughs> yes. So, the, and this is where virtue comes in. Virtue, if you look at, uh, in terms of the Eightfold Path, virtue is right speech, right action, right likelihood. If you look at the precepts we take, these are precepts for virtue. It's not harming or destroying, not taking what's not given, uh, avoiding sexual misconduct, uh, uh, avoiding wrong speech. Uh, you know, all of these things, if you look at what, in Buddhism, what virtue is about, virtue is not committing the actual actions or, or the actual speech as a result of your unwholesome motivations, as a result of your desire, your greed, uh, your uh, anger, your hatred, your fear, your whatever it is, your anxiety, it's, it's not performing unwholesome actions and unwholesome speech. It's not doing those things that are harmful to others. So the virtue part doesn't directly deal with the anger that might arise or the greed that might arise, but it does, it, it says, let's begin with the easiest thing, which is to not engage in the behavior. And this, this is the beginning of the process. Desire is natural, but if through your desire uh, you commit deeds, you take things that are not yours, you, uh, uh, you tell lies, you, uh, you know, whatever it happens to be, that's the first level at which you can begin to act. You can restrain yourself from committing these actions. Yes? I was wondering, here has the one element here in between or not? Because when I, if I, uh, you know, the anger rise, you know, and, and because of stimulation from outside, mm -hmm. then uh, instead of jumping to, uh, oh, I, I shouldn't react, okay, is that has elements here, just watching the, the, the anger mm -hmm. rise itself, because I, I'm thinking about is the so easy, or sometimes naturally, we habitually we get into suppress, suppress mm -hmm. the, the the anger or suppress. Okay, I do that because I know the consequence will be, be even mm -hmm. worse. So I, I I don't. But but I even mm -hmm. I just avoid that, 
know, and but also that I just wonder if you also have the opportunity to to. Yeah, that would be a case of doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, if if you're uh, harsh speech, I don't know. Does everybody know what right speech consists of? Avoiding uh, uh, false uh, false speech and uh, harsh speech and divisive speech and gossip. So harsh speech is one of the things that we take a precept to to do. Now, if you become anger angry, and you have the urge to scream at somebody, but you don't because if you do, they're going to hit you, then that's doing the right thing for the wrong reason. In other words, if you, if you restrain your action because you fear the consequences, then it's the right thing for the wrong reason. If you are greedy and somebody left a $20 bill there and you feel like taking it, but you don't because somebody might see you and you get caught, it's the right thing for the wrong reason. Virtue is doing the right thing for the right reason. And that's the difference. If you go through your life because you're smaller and weaker than everybody else, being angry a lot, but not acting out of the anger because you're afraid of the consequences, then you're going to be a very miserable person. You're not going to be a virtuous person. And then you're going to have a psychological problem because you have all this pent-up anger that you've never even expressed in the normal way. If you were a stronger person, perhaps you would at least have yelled back because you wouldn't have been afraid of the consequences. You wouldn't necessarily be healthy from the point of view we're talking about, but at least you wouldn't have had all this built-up frustration. But we're talking about going beyond that. We're talking about recognizing that, recognizing that not acting in a wrong way is not about consequences, or if it is, it's about the consequences that it have, has on you and on the other person. It's not about, uh, it's, it's not about the consequences in the ordinary sense. You see the difference? Mm -hmm. yeah. So, and we're not talking about suppressing anger either. We're talking about restraining action. If you keep the precepts and you find that your anger makes you engage in harsh speech, and that harsh speech hurts somebody else, then you can restrain yourself from acting on your anger. And it is the first step towards dealing with the anger, because it's progress if you have that awareness that stops you from speaking. That's already a degree of mindful awareness that you lacked before. And it is the foothold in the door that is going to lead to the mindful awareness where uh, in the future, not only will you not act out of your anger, but you'll not identify with it. You'll say, as, you'll say, anger is arising in me, not I am angry. And this is a big step forward then. And then you will examine, but every time the anger presents itself, you examine it mindfully. And that mindful examination communicates truth to the mental formations. Well, look at it this way. Every single instant of your experience is, that experience is a new mental formation which gets integrated with all of those that existed before. So if you spend 
10 minutes just mindfully examining the anger that has arisen. In that 10 minutes, there might be 10,000 distinct experiences of recognition of the unwholesomeness of anger that got stored with your, uh, you know, got transferred into your mental formations. So, uh, since I've been, you know, uh, more aware of these concepts and anger arises in me, yeah. I uh, do, uh, I do, so I do not speak, uh, but but not for that long. Yeah. It takes, yes, you have to be, you have to be patient, and you have to have confidence, and you, you know, if it takes 10 minutes, it takes 10 minutes. But it might take repeating the same thing uh, 20 times over six or eight weeks before you really, you know, uh, anger comes up and you just let it go and it's not a problem. In the meantime, there's been a lot of times where, it's like meditation, you know. You, you keep getting better at it. You have to just keep practicing it. So you think in six or eight weeks you can turn your partner on this? Oh, yeah. Awesome. Uh, yes, I, I, I guarantee you that, that you can. It's what's amazing about this, and absolutely, it, it is amazing, and I can't even tell you for sure why it would be so, although I have some ideas, but how can you reverse a lifetime of habit in a matter of a few weeks, but you can. You can. That's the power of mindful awareness. It depends how successful you are, depends on how good your mindful awareness is. And how good your mindful awareness is, is uh, something that you can influence by practicing mindful awareness and meditation and then carrying that over into your daily life. But if you have powerful mindful awareness, yeah, you can undo a lifetime of bad habits in a very short period of time. That's quite incredible. Good. Um, in, in my career, it's very hard to work with young girls mm -hmm. because I've been in business for a long time and uh, doing hair, and now I'm working with new kids that come in from beauty school, and they really don't teach them any ethics in school. In beauty school. It just doesn't happen at the schools. Mm -hmm. And uh, what has helped me, uh, these kids, they used to piss me off because they had, they're very selfish in their behavior. And, and by developing more compassion towards them, mm -hmm. when, I, when I became aware of having compassion, and, and sad, it makes me sad that nobody has helped them get them educated. Mm -hmm. you know, um, and just the compassion has changed the whole picture of how I saw these girls. So now I see them more like kids. Mm -hmm. Instead of being equal, yeah. I see I have more compassion for them. I feel sorry because they don't have, and I didn't either. You know, I just, I like, I like, like Neil says, mm -hmm. I, I just have a hunger for learning. Uh, I have educated all myself always, you know, and and these kids that really nobody has really educated them either, and and, and by me having compassion towards them, mm -hmm. uh, it made me understand, and and I see them totally different now. Yes, that's that's very wonderful. Uh, thanks for that story because that brings me to one more thing that I'll squeeze in. I, I'm cutting into your meditation time. I'm sorry. Just one one Just one more thing. So if we look at the Eightfold Path, you know, there was virtue, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and then that was followed by 
meditation, and it has three parts, uh, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So in meditation, we develop the mindfulness and the concentration that help us to work on exactly this problem that we're talking about. Through the practice of virtue, we stop acting on our negative mental states and our unwholesome motivations. But we're still left with the arising of them. What the Buddha said was that when he was just a bodhisattva, he realized that his motivations were of two kinds, wholesome and unwholesome. His motivations were those that came out of, of uh, greed and hatred and cruelty and those that came out of uh, uh, generosity, uh, loving, uh, generosity, patience, and loving kindness. And so when he formulated the Eightfold Path, he formulated one-eighth of the Eightfold Path was right effort. And he said, right effort is uh, causing unwholesome mental states that have arisen to pass away. So when the anger arises, you want to observe it mindfully while it's there, but you're just going to let it pass away. So you want to set aside unwholesome mental state. But the other thing is causing wholesome mental states to arise and to take their place. So what he said is as a bodhisattva, when there was greed, he replaced it with generosity. When there was hatred, he replaced it uh, with patience and understanding. And when there was uh, cruelty, he replaced it with loving kindness. And this is what we do in practicing right effort. Right effort is causing the uh, arisen unwholesome to pass away and the unarisen wholesome to arise in its place. It also involves the causing the wholesome that has arisen to remain and the uh, uh, unwholesome that has not arisen not to arise. But right now you see what you were talking about and this is the next thing. If you, when you get to the point where you can examine your anger mindfully instead of identifying with it and saying I am angry, so you examine it and it begins to weaken and go away, there will come a point where it's weak enough that now you can replace it with compassion, with loving kindness, which you can't do when it's really strong. When you're, when you're really ticked off at somebody, you know, it's hard to find that compassion. But if you, if you patiently allow that anger to subside, there will come a point where you can see that this is a person, uh, this is a person acting out of delusion, desire and aversion, who is suffering, and they don't even know what they're doing, and you can have compassion for them. And so that's what we want to do. It's not just a question of um, licking at our anger till it goes away. We also want to replace our unwholesome mental states with wholesome mental state. So that's, that's the next part in this process. You know, what's interesting here, uh, I, I said to this to you earlier today, that in order to become a Buddha, you start out by practicing being like a Buddha and trying to make yourself like a Buddha. And so 
instead of always being caught in becoming, practice being. And I hope some of you did that and maybe discovered how wonderful it is to be in the present. But the same thing, a Buddha is somebody who is free of all of those negative mental states that are produced by desire and aversion that are rooted in craving. And even though you still have craving, you can still begin to free yourself uh, from those negative mental states that arise. And the Buddha is somebody whose negative mental states don't arise, and in their place there are the, the positive mental states of uh, loving kindness and compassion. And so you can be like a Buddha in learning to uh, bring these positive mental states into your consciousness. This is changing your karma. So there's two levels of the practice. When you become enlightened, you move beyond karma. But until you are enlightened, you work with your karma. You overcome your bad karma and you create good karma to replace it. Mental formations are the repository of karma. And in everything that happens during your day, you have the opportunity to replace bad karma with good karma in the way that we've just talked about. And you also have the opportunity to mindfully reinforce the good karma that you have. When you are generous, when you are loving, when you are caring, this is, you know, this is also your good karma from the past. And by being mindful of that, you are creating more good karma for the future. So you want to do both. Yeah. Um, certainly when you're talking, I really want you that. But I just raised one kind of a question. Maybe not related to this, but kind of that. Uh, it's followed by Neil asking the choice and free will. Because um, I'm also trying to uh, understand from the, uh, especially for the category of uh, mental formation, and uh, recognize the self, okay, does not exist. However, through the teaching that, I get raised more and more I, something like I, 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 you know, do this and do that. So, so, so the I become more strong, you know, self, that, that concept become yeah. more strong during this uh, uh, practice. So, so that's why I just want to well, I think we're getting right for tomorrow to start talking about the I, and perhaps at the same time we'll get into the free will part of it. So we're getting there. Hopefully the foundation that we have, are creating is strong, the foundation of understanding. Yes? Uh, I, I need to clarify one thing. Because uh, you're talking about the, the theory. Yeah. Uh, theory only has a pleasure and the nature, right? Yeah. Okay. I wanna I wanna identify if this feeling the 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 same as the I mean the Buddha talking about this this feeling the same as the the other sutra called um no Snienju Snienju Dani Mo. Did somebody know? So is that satipatthana, the four applications of mind? Yeah, yeah. that's four <laughs> foundations. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The four four earnest contemplation. Yeah. Yeah. They say the uh, the second one is the contemplation of the feeling, 
Yeah, it's the same one, exactly. It's the same one? Yeah, it's the same one. Okay. Yeah. If you have a, if you, if you read the sutra. Yeah, I read the sutra. If you read the, the original sutra, uh, uh, it's exactly the same thing. The second one is, is feelings, what we're talking about. And they, uh, in that sutra, it says there's five kinds of feelings. There's, there's uh, pain that is physical in origin, pain that is mental in origin, uh, pleasure that is physical in origin, phys pain, phys pleasure that is mental in origin, and neutral feelings. Okay. Okay? So that's the same, right. same idea. When you read articles about that sutra, many of them you read will be written by people who don't know what feeling is, and they may think it's sensation or they may think it's emotion. So you have to be careful. But if you read the original sutra, it's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, the same thing. Uh, it, in English, most, most of the time, it's translated as four foundations of mindfulness because uh, it, it's hard for people to figure out how to translate patana but applications, in my opinion, applications is the best translation because four foundations of mindfulness, what does this mean? You know, what does this mean? What it is, it's four applications. You apply your mindfulness to the body, to feelings, to mental states, and to, to mental objects. Applications is the best translation, I think. So that's, that's how I translate it. Oh, yes. sorry. Uh, you don't have to answer this. You can decide whether you want to answer this or not. Uh, you, you said on different occasions that uh, a stream enter uh, would do uh, regretful things and immediately would apologize and re, you know have regrets about it. And it sounds like any virtuous person will behave like that. So yes. what distinguish a stream enter's behavior to that of an ordinary virtuous person? Uh, the, the only difference can, is... Can you repeat that question? I'll repeat. I, I think they're all good, but... Okay. <laughs> yeah, we, we're trying to record these and maybe someday somebody will transcribe them. That's why we need to repeat the questions. Okay. Uh, so I, I had said that a stream enterer might commit actions that are not virtuous, but will uh, very quickly realize that they've done this and they will uh, make some kind of amends for it. And so you said, well, it seems like any virtuous person would, and so what's the difference? And yes, any virtuous person would. There's not a difference. The only difference is that uh, a stream enterer, because, uh, because of the level of mindfulness and wisdom that they've already attained, is perhaps somewhat less likely to make the unvirtuous action in, in the first place, somewhat more likely to notice it more quickly, and perhaps somewhat more likely to uh, find it easier to make amends, or less hesitation. But perhaps by looking at them in the world, you couldn't tell the difference. So, so it's not a distinguishing factor. It's not a distinguishing factor, but it's an identifiable characteristic. Yes. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. And, and as a matter of fact, that's, that is the way it's described in the sutras. It's described as, uh, as a characteristic. And so other people could have the same characteristic, other yes. virtuous people. Thank you very much. Okay. You're welcome. Other questions? Okay, so.
then we we will uh, we will continue this tomorrow, getting more into the self part of it and the uh, and the free will part of it. And in the meantime, uh, I hope. I hope everybody is totally with me up to this point and understands everything we've talked about. Good, good, good. Thank you. That's wonderful. Let's have just a very brief, brief stretch. Try, try to be back in like less than five minutes if you can, okay? Because we don't have very much time.